Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 4. Onward, Christian soldier, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe forward into battle. See his banner go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee on then Christian soldier, on to victory. Hell's foundation quiver, the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices loud, your anthem raise. Like a mighty armor moves the church of God. Brothers, we are teaching where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body. We, one in hope and doctrine, one in clarity. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, laud, and honor unto Christ the King. This through, through countless ages men and angels sing. Onward, Christian soldier, march as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. In our narrative, we just had the first Christian martyr of the church. Stephen, a man whose face literally shined like an angel, fell victim to the merciless stones of hatred and murder. And if it wasn't worse, his executioners didn't have their pound of flesh. But they went on to persecute more and more people, and so they scattered, our text says. They scattered thinking, well, if it happened to Stephen, it could happen to me, and perhaps it would. Which leads us to our perplexing text, starting in verse 4 of chapter 8. Jerusalem is in chaos. What are the apostles going to do? What are the Christians, the followers of Jesus, going to do? What is the plan? You've heard of the saying, are you a, do you fight or do you flight? Do the Christians get a committee together, strategize their next move? Do they protest, hunger strike? Or seek maybe the political powers at bay and say, hey, we need more religious freedom. That's what we need to do. Do they escape into maybe their Christian ghettos, their Christian co-ops, just praying, praying that people would just literally go to hell and leave us alone. What are they going to do? Well, the answer to what they're going to do is actually in our text. It's in a repeated phrase that comes up all throughout this narrative six times. And it's quite perplexing when you think about it on the surface. Stephen is martyred. They scatter, but they don't retreat. They don't retreat. They advance and to quote the six-time repetition that our author Luke says, they preach the word. They preach the gospel. This comes up in verse 4, verse 5, verse 11, verse 25, verse 35, and verse 40. 
it actually comes up at the beginning of the narrative and the end of the narrative, which is an inclusio. It's a narrative bookend. Right? When I first read this, I was like, how do, you, how do you talk about these two? They seem like two separate stories that we're going to get into, but Arthur Luke is saying they're together, and he encloses them in this narrative inclusio by the nature of that both of them, that the gospel was being preached, and it went out and advanced. And so, the point of the author couldn't be clear. Whatever season you're in, prosperity or persecution, preach the gospel. Evangelize the lost. Herald the king. Get at it. Charge the mountain. Don't quit. Don't give up. Press on. March. Charge the hill. You get the point. Now, normally I preach this narratively, but I think the author actually wants us to kind of look at these three main characters. And so we're going to do it. We're going to first look at Simon. We're then going to look at the Ethiopian. And after that, we're going to look at Philip. And we're going to see how they can speak into our life and what we can take from those three characters. And if you think about it, the combination of these three is pretty hilarious, right? It almost sounds like a bad joke. Like what happens when a magician, a government official, and an evangelist go into a bar? Like it almost feels like that. You're like, what do these guys have in common? You you can end the joke in your own punchline way. So in framing this this sermon in this way, I want us to see that even in the early church, ministry was quite complex. There's no formula for success. No one-size-fits-all formula. This was a complex world filled with complex people and complex systems and complex situations, what's called for prayerful discernment at how to evangelize, herald the gospel, and move and advance the kingdom forward. So first, what happens when the gospel meets a religious syncretist? Or if you like Harry Potter, what what happens when the gospel meets a religious mudblood? Chef Boyardee religion, right? A little of this, a little of that. Put in a religious cauldron and you get out what? What do you do when the gospel comes to that sort of person? And we're going to see that in verses 9 through 25. And then second, what happens when the gospel meets a pious seeker? We'll see that in the life of the Ethiopian, verses 26 and 40. And then lastly, what can we learn and glean from the ministry of Philip as it relates to our own life? We're going to see that in the life of Philip. So if you go to verse 5 and read, it's a general account of this ministry, the gospel going to Samaria. right? And then it actually backs up and it focuses on a particular person in Samaria where the gospel kind of took root, and that's Simon. Now, Simon was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were not merely disliked by the Jews. They're despised, and in a lot of ways for good reason. If you go back into the, to the monarch of Israel in the 8th century, 10 tribes defected, making Samaria their capital, and only two tribes remained faithful and loyal to Jerusalem. So that was kind of strike one. It became steadily worse when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 and thousands of their inhabitants were deported and the country was repopulated by foreigners. And then in the 6th century, when the Jews returned, 
to actually build the temple after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews actually refused to allow the Samaritans to help them rebuild. So the Samaritans actually built their own temple in, at Mount Gerasim, which was a no-no, right? That's like strike three or four. And then severing types forever, they actually rejected much of the Old Testament and said, we actually only believe in the authority of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and everything else we just don't think is actually helpful. So you can imagine the Jews' tension and hostility because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were mudbloods, both in race and religion. They were heretics and schismatics. And if that weren't enough, Simon's a magician. He's a magician. No, not just like sleight of hand kind of magic or like, hey, look, I'm going to put a pencil up my nose and it looks like it. We're not talking about that kind of magic. All right, that's cool magic. All right, what we're talking about is the occult. We're talking about demonic, satanic stuff going on here. And that's what this Simon of the Magician was all about. He was about power. He had powerful magic at bay. And in a city like this, I feel like we almost disregard this and say, uh, he didn't really do the sorts of things that he said he did, or he didn't have that much magic. But the Bible is quite clear that there is power to be had within the demonic world. Right? I mean, if we read the Bible and believe the Bible, then the Pharaoh, the sorcerers, the kind of the left and right-hand man of Pharaoh in Exodus 4 and 5, they literally turned their staffs into snakes. I don't know what else we call that other than magic. Or you read in 1 Samuel 28, a really bizarre story in which the king of the Jews at the time, Saul, wanted to know how he might conquer the Philistines. 1 Samuel 28. So he's like, I got to talk to a prophet. Problem. The prophet Samuel's dead. So what's he going to do? Well, he's got an idea. So he finds the witch of Endor, a medium, to conjure up the dead body of Samuel so that Saul could actually talk to him and get some advice. Right? Instantly you should go, this, this no-no. And here's the thing, the witch of Endor does it. She conjures up this medium, Samuel, and Samuel, dead Samuel, talks to Saul. And then as a result, actually Saul, or Samuel actually says, hey Saul, you're going to die tomorrow in battle as a result of the evilness and the wickedness of what you have done. The occult is nothing to be trifled with. Simon the occultist, the magician. And it's interesting because he has a nickname, right? a self-proclaimed nickname, which if you ever hear someone who gives himself a nickname, red flags should go off. Right? That's kind of weird. You don't nickname yourself. Like, I am Stephen the Wise. Like, that should come external, not internal. But he gives himself an actual nickname, Simon the Great. And why was he great? Well, our text in verse 11 tells us why he was so great and why people thought he was so great. Because the man is the power of God that is called great. So they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his powerful magic. So here's this guy whose identity and profession is completely and utterly wrapped up in this power, this magic. That's what he's all about. He's been chasing it his entire life as all people in the occult do. They chase power in whatever form and whatever way they can get their hands on it. And then Philip comes. And what does Philip come doing? Two things. He comes preaching the word and accompanying that are signs and wonders. 
And you can think from, if you're putting yourself in Simon's shoes, you go, he's thinking, power, magic. And not only that, but he's probably thinking, wow, this, is, this outmatches my power and magic. Look at all the things in which this guy's doing. I want in on this. Right? If you can't beat him, join him. So what's, what's Simon going to do? Well, let's go to verse 12. But when they believed, this is amazing, the Samaritans, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And I love this. Our author even be, says, and even Simon himself believed, right? It's almost so shocking that they have Luke has to import this. Even he believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, Simon, was amazed. Of course he was. Of course he was. So Philip preaches, the gospel goes forth, and men and women believe, including a magician named Simon. And not only did Simon believe, but he was baptized. And we see this in the next story too. Belief and baptism flow, or belief, belief flows into baptism like a marriage proposal flows into a wedding ceremony. Okay, so stay with me for a second. I want to just kind of land on baptism for a second, right? Mar marriage proposals flow into a marriage ceremony. That's the way in which they are supposed to work. One precedes the other, but the culmination of the first always ends in the second, or at least it should biblically. Or here, here's another example. For those of you who are graduating or you have graduated, Okay, what is the relationship between graduation ceremonies and graduating? What's, how, do they, how are they relate? Well, right, do you have to walk in your graduation ceremony in order to graduate? And the answer is no, you can graduate in abstentia. However, the graduation ceremony is a public declaration that you have graduated. The institution has to sign off to say you've done everything that you needed to do in order to graduate, and so, Graduation ceremony is a party, a declaration that, hey, I am, in this sense, in OSU. Though, in one sense, you can still graduate and not actually. You can still graduate and um, you still don't have to go to the graduation ceremony, but you could still graduate. So they're related. They are related. You see, baptism is a sacrament. And in the Protestant church, there's two sacraments that we believe in. Baptism and, we're looking at it right here, the Lord's table or communion. Two sacraments. And the sacrament literally means it's a, it's a sacred rite. And in Jesus' day, it referred to a soldier who took an oath of allegiance to a king. That's what baptism is. It's an oath of allegiance to Jesus as your king, as your Lord, as your savior. And I always personally get nervous when people say, hey, I, um, I, I like this Jesus thing. I just don't want to declare it publicly through baptism. Right? It seems weird. It would be equivalent to someone asking me this question, I feel like. Do you have to, I have a daughter, do I have to publicly hug my daughter in order to explain my love for her? Isn't that a weird, a weird thing? Like, of course I would want to publicly declare my love for my daughter through a hug. But, I mean, I don't technically have to. Or think about this, ladies. Imagine you dating a guy. Imagine you dating a guy and, and you found out that the guy... Didn't run, told everyone, like, hey, I'm not going to tell anyone we're dating. Right? How weird would that be if you came to him and you're like, so we're dating, right? And he's like, yeah. But you're not going to tell anyone about us dating. 
He's like, exactly, right? What do you, what do you, run, right? That's, that'd be my advice, right? Run, right? That's weird, okay? No one would feel comfortable with that. And yet, I think that's so often what we do. You see, baptism actually flows out of belief. It's this powerful thing because baptism is a, an, an outward proclamation of an inward reality. And see, so we at the branch, we believe in believer baptism. We believe that that's actually what we see here in these two situations. They believe the gospel and then as a response, declared their allegiance to Jesus in the act of baptism, the sacrament of baptism. Now, one one little tangent. There are some legitimate things that you might be thinking. Maybe you were baptized as an infant or maybe you were baptized into another religion or maybe that you think like, well, I actually became a Christian after I was baptized because I was baptized when I was little. You might have various questions that are really good questions. And my only suggestion is me and Josh will be back and we'll be in the back after, um, after the sermon. We'd just love to talk with you. There are legitimate questions and there are some messy situations. Now, we just love to talk and pray and try to unravel this and try to explain why we've come to the conclusions we have and help serve you and love you and walk with you in this season. So if that's you, just please come back after during our prayer time and we love to talk with you and walk you through what baptism is and how we can serve you in that way. So back to our text. Right, these are exciting times. The, the spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, the gospel has gone to Samaria, right? It was promised in Acts 1.8 that it would go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Here's the promise fulfilled. The Holy Spirit and the gospel is in Samaria. Then we get to verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said this, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You guys see what just happened? Simon's been chasing power all his life, and he found it. Unadulterated power. He wants it. And he's got something that he could maybe get it. One thing he has probably a lot of is money. So he's going to try to buy it. He's going to try to buy it. You see, Simon is a religious syncretist. He combines his belief in Jesus with his occult background or his superstitious upbringing. He, if you will, marries a biblical worldview with a pagan worldview. Simon brings all the garbage of his old life into his new life. And when I say that, you might say, well, doesn't everyone? Yeah, they do. There's, there's an old story of this gangster, this real-life gangster named Mickey Cohen. And uh, Mickey Cohen, the gangster, hung out with Billy Graham okay, in a private meeting at Mickey Cohen's house. And rumors started circulating, oh my gosh, Mickey Cohen became a, a Christian. Now just think about that testimony. Think about actually giving your testimony at church right before Mickey Cohen. You're like, even if you're like, I was hooked on drugs and meth and I became a Christian and everyone celebrates. Just think about Mickey Cohen came in up like, well, I murdered people for a living. And I just think of the power of that testimony for the church. And so everyone's excited. Like, oh my gosh, if Mickey Cohen becomes a Christian, he's going to be this amazing evangelist for the gospel in America. And so one day someone asked Mickey Cohen, hey, hey man, are you a Christian? And this is what he said publicly. He said, well, sure, sure. 
I've been noticing that there are Christian baseball players, Christian presidents, and Christian lawyers. I'm going to be the first Christian gangster, right? We laugh at that. We're like, you can't do that. But I think we do that all the time. He wanted to marry mob, gangster, Italian style kind of stuff with Christianity and said, I can, I can harmonize these. I can sync these up. And I think we laugh at this, but I think some of us struggle with this because we do this all the time. Because Simon mixed Christianity with superstition. But I think all of us, if we're honest, have an aspect of us that we can relate to Simon. I mean, do you mix Christianity with worldliness? Thinking you can have both, right? You lift your hands on Sunday and then bow your head to the ceramic God as you throw up your Wednesday's casserole on Thursday night. Are you one of those really disciplined people? Really disciplined people? And so you disguise your worship of control using a few Bible verses as you rule your house and your family and your kids and your spouse with an iron fist, putting the veneer of Christianity over it. God wants me to be happy, right? How do you marry that with die to yourself and take up your cross? God helps those who help themselves. How do you marry that with John 15 that says, apart from me, you can do nothing? God wants me to be comfortable, middle class, American dream. And how do you do that with any part of the Bible, including when Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? How do you marry those two? Simon desires power, and he wants it through theft or coercion or manipulation because the, the apostles had it. But here's the thing. The apostles actually didn't steal it. That authority was a gift. It was given to them by God. And so Simon, in one sense, and in a big sense, he just didn't get it. And we can talk here, was Simon a Christian or not a Christian? I, I have no idea. I know not every person who's baptized, who in one sense believes, is a Christian. Our text doesn't know. We live in the ambiguity and the tension of it. I don't know if he is or is not a Christian. But I do know that his response is very telling. Look at it in verse 20. But Peter said to him, or let's look at the, uh, first um, what Peter says, and then we'll look at the response of Simon. This is what Peter says. Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you. Here's the literal translation, and I don't mean to be shock and awe, not that kind of person, but the literal translation is, hey, Simon, to hell with you. And then Peter goes on and says, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in the matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Man, Peter, I have a chill pill. I mean, didn't you, aren't you the guy who like denied Christ three times? I mean, don't judge lest you judge, right? right? Peter's not perfect. How dare he say this? Right? This is intense language. Peter saw where Simon was going. Peter saw how demonic it was and the heart behind what Simon was actually asking. And so he calls him to respond and to respond in a certain way by repenting. 
He says, repent, repent. Simon, you're missing it. Your heart is sick. That thought is hellbound. It's satanic. Don't go that way. Change your mind about it. I don't, I don't know about you, but have you ever been called out by a Christian brother or sister? Your heart begins to race. Your hands begin to sweat. You're like, oh, man, and all of us who aren't lawyers, we become some of the greatest lawyers as your inner lawyer just comes up. You defend, you deflect, you hide. You do all of these things because you're like, oh, they see me. They see me. But in the hidden recesses of a truly regenerate man or woman is the spirit. And the spirit cries out, shh, just, just listen. Listen to your brother or sister. They, they love you. They're, there's truth to be had. Repent. If you are truly in Christ, it's safe to repent. And the Spirit says, I, I want you to represent and be like Jesus. And this is one of the ways I do it. Brothers and sisters calling you out and asking you to repent, to change your mind about who is God in your life. And that's what Peter did for Simon. And what would Simon do? Simon answers, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Pray to your God that none of the consequences would come. Right? Uh, Peter, those, that sounds terrible what you're talking about. That sounds like a curse. I don't want any of that. So pray to your God that the curses don't come upon me. Right? He's just sorry for the consequence of what he had said, not necessarily for the sin of which he had committed. And non-repentance is, is one of the hardest things in the world, isn't it? All Simon asks Peter to do is that he wanted to be saved from the experience of his sin, not from the sin itself. Superstition. Superstition. And if I were Peter, and I'm glad I'm not, I would have said, pray to him yourself. But the text is silent, and we have no idea where Simon went or what he did or where he was at or if he actually truly believed. So what happens when the gospel meets a religious syncretist? Well, Sometimes, actually most of the time, it, it gets messy. It gets messy. And so, for those of you who feel like, maybe I'm a Simon, maybe I've done this, the question is, is Christianity merely a superstition in your life? I mean, what could it hurt? Fire insurance? A little extra oomph for your life? A spiritual religious rabbit foot? I wasn't a Christian, and I decided to go to a Christian college. And in order to do that, you had to write a conversion story. So I had a couple of options. But the one I just decided was to lie. Okay, So I wrote a fake conversion story to get into a Christian college. And there was one reason why I did it. One reason, and I've told this many times to my embarrassment, especially my wife's embarrassment. Right? I did it because the girls were hot. That was my reason. So I married. I was like, well, this will be good for me. The girls are really cute here. There's four girls to every one guy. My odds are really good. And so I wrote a fake conversion. I tried to marry some you know, worldly pursuit of, of getting a girl with Christianity. I married them together, and it, did, it didn't go well for me at all. That's Simon. 
And if that's yours, then my, my advice is the same as Peter's advice. Repent. Turn your gaze once again to the God who loves you, who died for you, and gives you the grace to turn in allegiance to him. Do that which Simon didn't do in our text. Repent. So, so that's Simon, the religious syncretist. But there's another story, and that's the story of the Ethiopian. Go to verse 27. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He came to Jerusalem to worship and was retrained. And he, he came to worship in Jerusalem. He was seated in a chariot, chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So our setting changes. Philip moves south to Gaza and he meets an Ethiopian. Now, this isn't a, an actual Ethiopia where Ethiopia is right now. It's actually Sudan. Or if you're reading your Old Testament, if you ever read Cush, he's a Cushite, okay? That's the nation that he's from. So here's this guy who's a Cushite. But he's not just that. He's a big deal. He was a court official of Candace, which is not a place. It's a royal designation. And he served the queen mother as her treasurer, right? So in, in some way, this, this guy's the secretary of the treasury of Cush. That's his role. Think about it. He had to be pretty smart, pretty wise. You don't just wake up one day and you're, the head, you're on the Federal Reserve Board, right? You got to be wise. You got to work really hard to do it. He probably got his PhD from the Warden School of Business of Cush and worked 20 years as a CEO of Merrill Lynch, Right. To get where he had to be, he had to be really trustworthy too. Even the thought of embezzlement would cost him his life. I mean, talk about above reproach. And he must have had quite the favor of the queen mother too, because he went from Cush to Jerusalem to worship, which is not like driving from Albany to Corvallis. He took a chariot, but that whole adventure, that whole journey took a year. It took a year. So he had to take a year off of work as the treasurer of a big nation in order to travel to Jerusalem to worship. Talk about the favor of the queen mother. And not only that, talk about a pious guy who's going to do that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it snows a fourth of an inch in Corvallis, and we're like, nah, I don't want to chance it. I'm not going to church tonight, right? And this guy travels from, from like Corvallis to San Diego also he can worship God in Jerusalem. I mean, talk about an amazing dude. Talk about a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And probably right before he left, he was thinking, I need some reading material. Better buy a scroll. So he buys Isaiah. It's like, I don't need some reading material. Do you know how much a scroll would cost in those days? I mean, he spent a year's salary to just buy a scroll. And I'm not talking about any scroll. If you rolled it all up, the Isaiah scroll was 100 feet. Talk about heavy. But that's what he does. That's the kind of pious Ethiopian man. He takes a year off of his life to travel to go to Jerusalem to worship. He's probably a Jewish convert, but because he's been in Cush, he has no idea what's been going on about Jesus, about this movement, about his life, death, resurrection, about Pentecost. He has no idea. He's just going to one of the festivals in Jerusalem and going on his merry way. And then here comes Philip. And God says, go over there. Join that chariot. 
So Philip runs over and heard the Ethiopian reading the Isaiah scroll. And he asked him, hey man, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian responds in this way. And here is humility. Here, this pious seeker. How can I unless someone guides me? How can I unless someone guides me? I mean, this guy's incredible. So Philip sits down with him and the Ethiopian, and he reads Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, which says this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before the shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the death. And herein lies the Ethiopian's fundamental question. Who is this? Is this about the prophet Isaiah? Or is this about someone else? You see, the Ethiopian is actually fishing for something. And what he's about to catch is a going to change the rest of his life. He wants to know who the pronoun is. Grammar matters, right? He wants to know what the pronoun actually relates to. Is it Isaiah or is it somewhere else? Now, I don't know if you realized it, but I left out one attribute or one characteristic or one description of this guy. Now, you might be thinking I'm doing it because I want to be polite or I'm a bit prudish. But this guy... He wasn't just brilliant and powerful and of the upper echelon in his society. He was also a eunuch. He was a eunuch. He'd been castrated. I mean, perhaps it would make perfect sense. He works with the queen mother and probably women, so it would make sense that they would, as a result of that, castrate him. So maybe it wasn't his choice. But he had that horrific and brutal outward sign. Now, our author actually wants us to draw attention to this because it's, it's not just that he's a eunuch. Six times Luke says he's a eunuch, and I think he does it for an interesting reason. Because it seems quite odd. Like, Luke, leave this guy alone. I know he's a eunuch, but like, don't draw attention to his handicap. Be a little bit more polite, Luke. See, in the Old Testament, certain people were not allowed to worship God in the temple because the temple represented God's holiness, God's perfection. So we read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, that there's a certain type of person that wasn't allowed to go into the temple. Deuteronomy 23, 1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The eunuch. So this man travels from Jerusalem to worship and he couldn't even go into the temple because he was a eunuch. Very interesting. I mean, have you ever wondered why he's reading Isaiah? Why he purchased Isaiah? I mean, it's a long scroll. I bet he could have gotten like a a two-for-one deal at the scroll shop in Cush, right? He could have been like Proverbs and I'll throw in Lamentations and maybe even sprinkle in some Song of Solomon, right? I mean, why Isaiah? It doesn't make any sense. Why would he purchase the scroll of Isaiah? I think there's a reason. Because Isaiah 53 is all about the Messiah, which is what he read. But after Isaiah 53, shocking, is Isaiah 54, which is all about the eternal covenant of peace. And then we get to Isaiah 55, which is about the compassion of the Lord. And then we get to Isaiah 56. 
And Isaiah 56 says something a very important, a very important thing to this specific Ethiopian. This is what Isaiah 56 verse 3 says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And, not, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast my covenant. Here's the promise to the eunuch. I will give in my house and within my walls a mountain and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. See why Isaiah is really important to the eunuch? Do you see why he wants to know Isaiah 53 if this is the Messiah? Because it's vastly important to him because it means he gets to get into the temple. It means the veil is cut. I mean, this guy's been an outsider all his life, religiously speaking. And when the Messiah comes as a result of Isaiah 53, he has access in a way that he's never had access before. That's where his pious humility comes from because all his life he's been an outsider. All his life he hasn't been good enough. All his life there's been access to his relationship with God that have been thwarted. But now, as a result of Philip and what Philip is about to explain, he has access to God in an amazing way. His greatest insecurity was swallowed up at Calvary. His greatest fear was taken away. His greatest dream had come to completion in Christ. No wonder this guy jumps at the opportunity to get baptized. There's, I mean, there's no like, well, can I or should I? Like, he's literally just scanning the horizon being like, hey, I want to get baptized. Water, can we do it here? He's extremely excited to get baptized because the barrier had been torn down to the Ethiopian. And in the gospel, it's been torn down for you and for me. Do you feel like an outsider? Maybe you don't know the language. Maybe you weren't raised in the church. Maybe you've done something or experienced something that makes you feel as though you're an outsider. You, you might not be a physical eunuch, but maybe you're a spiritual eunuch. There's wonderful news. You have access to God. You, have a, you can have a relationship with him. There is hope on the horizon for you in God. I mean, the thematic line throughout the entire Bible is that God is more wonderful and amazing and glorious than you could ever imagine. And simultaneously, you are more wicked and broken than you could ever understand. And only in the Christian gospel are those two things reconciled in the person and work of Christ who took on your sin and my sin when he died and rose again. And have, we have victorious life in him as a result of that. And in Gaza on a desert road, the gospel is now carried on the back of this eunuch back to Cush for many to hear. How exciting is that? How amazing is that? I mean, it's, it's really humbling to think I've been to Africa and being like, oh, I'm taking the gospel. Dude, the gospel's been there for so long, right? And it's been there for 2,000 years, all because of this eunuch, all because of Simon preaching it. So we've got the gospel to Simon first, the religious syncretist. We've got the gospel to the Ethiopian, the pious seeker. And then we've got Philip. 
Now, do you guys know who Philip is? Philip, uh, we read about him in chapter 6. He and Stephen were on the same ministry team, the Widow Distribution Fund. He wasn't an apostle. He was a pretty normal dude. Later in Acts, he actually has a nickname. It's probably one of the best nicknames I think you could ever receive. Acts 21 talks about it. His nickname is, he's Philip the Evangelist. How cool is that? Right? Simon gives himself one. The early church gave Philip that designation. And Philip is one of my heroes because he really is a model of faithful ministry in a complex world. So what I want to do is I just want to look at a few characteristics of Philip's ministry life and then ask you a fundamental question. When it comes to ministry, do you see those in your own life? Have you neglected any of these? Because if you are a Christian, you are a minister. You make disciples. When Jesus called his disciples, what did he say simultaneously? And I will make you fishers of men. So the, mo- the calling and the going are actually two sides of the same coin. So I want to look at Philip's life and ask these questions. So as I do, just ask yourself, do you, do you see this represented in the manner in which you do ministry? Or maybe if you want to, do you see this represented in the manner in which the branch does ministry? So Philip ministered multiracially. We see this in the Samaritan and the Cushite. Do you? Philip preached the word. Sometimes I hear people quote, or what they think, it's not an actual quote, but Francis Assisi, and they say, preach the gospel And if you have to, use words. Nonsense. Nonsense. The gospel is good news to be proclaimed. And Philip didn't fall into that false dichotomy. He preached the gospel. Philip was persuasive. We see that early on in verse 6. He didn't bore people with the gospel. He was excited about the gospel. And he was pervasive. I mean, one of the simplest definitions of evangelism is preaching or teaching the gospel with the means of of converting by persuading, right? Persuasion should be part and parcel of our evangelistic efforts. His ministry was word and deed. He preached the gospel and healed people. He wasn't worried about ministry confrontation. We see this in the story of Simon. I mean, Simon was bold. He was courageous. Are we? He wasn't a lone ranger minister, right? He called Peter and John to come to, come to Samaria to check out what he was doing. He had accountability. He was sensitive to the voice of God. He listened. This is fascinating. He, he knew and could understand the voice of God. I mean, do you know how or when was the last time you heard the voice of God? Do you even know what that sounds like? Philip did. Not only that, but he listened. He obeyed. Right? The angel said, go to a desert place, right? which doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Go to Gaza in this desert place and then go talk to this Ethiopian eunuch. Nothing of it makes sense. And yet he listened to the voice of God and he obeyed. And every time you obey, there's going to be people saying, you're crazy. You're crazy. But it didn't matter to Philip. His ministry centered on the gospel. To Simon and the Ethiopian, he preached the same gospel. He didn't change the essential message based on different people. His message was the same. It was the Christian gospel. He used also different evangelistic methods for different people. To Simon, he preached big, right? He declared it in a big gathering. And then with the Ethiopian, he sat over coffee in a chariot and actually had a dialogue about the gospel and answered questions. 
And then lastly, he lived, Philip, a, a fully and utterly dependent life on the Holy Spirit. I'm sure he had his moments, but from our text, there's this constant repetition of the Holy Spirit in the life and works and ministry of Philip. Because ministry can be done in the, in the flesh, can't it? Right? Some of us have abilities or talents or gifts, and we can just kind of do it by ourselves. But not Philip. His ministry was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Did you guys see how often the Holy Spirit came up in the text? He's all over the place. Because ministry devoid of the Holy Spirit is like running a marathon without food or hydration. And it really can't be done. And if you try it, you're really going to hurt yourself and hurt others. I mean, have you ever wondered this question? How could Jesus do miracles in the Gospels? It's an interesting question. Did he pull down his second person of his Trinity card and say, God, miracle? Is that what he did? There's some debate in regards to this, but generally theologians actually believe that when it comes to his miracles, he didn't throw down his God card. He actually was fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Right? When, we, when we read of this in Philippians 2, when, he, when it said that Jesus emptied himself, the kenosis, what, what did he empty himself? Well, to quote Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology, what he did is he set aside his independent use, this is Jesus, of his divine attributes and lived a fully spirit-filled life. That's what Jesus did when he was on earth. And in light of that, that's what Philip did. And that's what we should be doing as well. I mean, that's why Hudson Taylor could write, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. So, any of these stand out to you? Are there any of these that are lacking in your life and ministry that Philip might actually as a mirror help us to see? So if your assignment today, trying to kind of synchronize Christianity with the worship of another God, I'll say this. Today is a new day. Repent. Are you an outsider like the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, today is a new day. Rejoice. All of your desire can be found in Christ. Or are you like Philip? And I'd say, well, today is a glorious day to give your life away, dependent upon the Spirit and the power of the gospel as you proclaim the gospel to those who believe and those who do not yet believe. In 1865, Reverend Gold wrote Onward Christian Soldiers. He wrote it as uh, to help children as they were marching from one village to another in England. And he wrote it to encourage them, to disciple them, to equip them. We gather here to scatter, and as we do, we sing with the children of old as we march out of here in a few minutes. Onward, Christian soldiers, march as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Would you all pray for me and pray with me?